2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We are going through this wonderful book, or these books, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And we've arrived today at chapter 6. And we see in this chapter a war between the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria. And that war is remarkable because the last story that we studied in 2 Kings was the story of chapter 4, where the, the general of the Syrian army came into Israel and became a believer. And yet, the king of Syria still attacked, attacks Israel. And we need to remember that politicians are fickle. They change their minds very quickly. 1 Corinthians says there are not many mighty men called. Not many princes and kings. And here we see Syria attacking Israel. Imagine what that would be like. One country is the size of, I wrote in my notes, New Jersey. That's a state in the U.S. Let me try to think something over here. Maybe that would be about the size of, of the Western Cape. One Western and Eastern Cape put together. One of those countries is small. The other country is very large. About the size of all of South Africa or larger. It's the country of Syria, not Assyria. Assyria is an entire empire to the east. But this is the country of Syria. And it's moving in to attack Israel. Israel has been a foolish and wicked people. And that is why God is raising up these countries to attack them. From the book of Judges, 500 years earlier, when in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, they begin pursuing false gods. From that time until today, 500 years has passed, and Israel is still following false gods. Off and on, up and down. Their love for Jehovah is is half-hearted, And so because of that, God has allowed terrible problems to come to them. In fact, most of the references to the country of Syria involve the wars that they are making with Israel. This country, Syria, is specially raised up by God to bring problems to God's people. The foolish pastors who say... That God wants us always to be comfortable and happy. Have forgotten that God commonly raises up countries to bring problems and make life difficult for God's people because of their sin. But now, this country is attacked. And the king of Syria is angry at the king of Israel. 
How would you feel if you were a mother alive at this time, giving your children to fight in a battle like this? Syria is going to attack Israel, but they're unhappy because in chapter 6, verse 8, Elisha miraculously warns the army. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. The king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, in this place I'll put my camp. But in verse 9, the man of God, Elisha, tells the king of Israel, watch out, don't go over by this area, because the king of Syria is waiting for you in an ambush. And this happens several times. So in verse 11, the king of Syria is furious. The heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled. But one of the king's servants knows about the prophet in Israel. And so he tells the king, oh master, it's none of us. There are no traitors here. It's Elisha, the prophet of God. He's doing this. How did that man know about Elisha? And that man is in verse number 12. One of his servants says, Oh Lord, there's this man of God. How did he know about this man of God? Perhaps he was with Elisha when he healed Naaman. Some of those servants went. And now the king is so angry that his, it's as if his anger and his reason are in a wrestling match. And his anger wins over his logic. So what does the king decide to do? If there is a a man of God who's warning the king of Israel, we'll kill him. Let's go ambush the man of God. You should be laughing. The, The prophet is warning. He's told by God whenever the enemy troops are coming. Why would you try to ambush someone who is told by God all about your plans before they happen? Well, so the king decides to sneak up on this prophet. Elisha is living in the small town of Dothan. It's about 15 kilometers from the capital city of Samaria. You could walk there in an hour and a half or so. And here is where he is when the story opens. This is the background for the scene where the greatest number of angels in the Old Testament is about to be revealed. Many people are fascinated by the subject of angels. Perhaps you are. This story is going to explain when the greatest number of angels was revealed. Let's understand this today in a few points. We'll look first of all at what the young man saw. There's a servant in verse 15, and I'm going to show you what he saw. Then secondly, I'm going to show you what Elisha saw. And then thirdly, I'm going to show you what wasn't shown. So there's three points if you're following it. Let's see what the servant saw. 
let's see what Elisha saw, and then let's see what no one saw. Point number one is in verse 15. In verse 15, the Bible says, When the servant of the man of God was risen early and went out, behold, a host surrounded the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Oh, my master, what can we do? Point number one, the servant was terrified. What did the man see? The the man saw all of the armies and he was terrified. Now, who is this man? You'll remember in the last story that we saw in chapter 5 that Naaman was healed when Elisha's servant was Gehazi. But then Gehazi was given leprosy and he left the service of Elisha. Now there's a new servant. And this servant wants to please his master, so he gets up at what time in verse 15? He gets up very early. I want to make a good impression. I want my master to be proud. He goes and gets some hot water so that Elisha can wash his face. He gets ready the tea. He gets ready the food to make his master happy in the morning. And then he sees what happened in the night. An overwhelming force had been pouring into the valley all through the dark hours. Through the twilight, the taps had been opened and the flood had begun. And now it's the morning and he sees not a lake of water, but a sea of soldiers. Hundreds, possibly thousands of men are all gathering. The word great army is used. Do you see that? A great host in verse 15. That same Hebrew word is used to describe the army of 185,000 in 2 Kings 18. So the Hebrew word here that says a great number of men were waiting for Elisha. That same word is used to describe an army of 185,000. So he runs to his master. What can we do? Why ask your master? Have you not learned to pray? Well, what is this man's problem? Well, Elisha tells us. Someone look in verse 16. Verse 17. What is the problem with this young man? In verse 17, what is his problem? He's blind. Open his eyes so that he can see. That's his problem. He's terrified because of his eye problem. Elisha simply tells him, hey, stop all this fear. Look in verse 16. He says, hey, don't fear. Elisha says to him, hey, you stop this. He doesn't yet give a reason. He just tells him to stop. Where, where, why are you afraid? What are you trusting in? Are, are, you, are you so foolish spiritually that you're serving the man of God and you've forgotten about God himself? Perhaps you have temporarily forgotten. 
Isn't that like us? Are we not a forgetful people? Raise your hand if God has ever made himself real to you in power and life in your heart. Has there ever been a time when you have known that God has come in saving grace and power and life and answering your prayers? Have you ever felt that? Why is it that you forgot it? How could you forget something like that? But isn't that what happened with the children of Israel? Could you possibly forget if God opened up an ocean so that you could walk from Africa to Brazil? Could you possibly forget if he opened the ocean for you? The Jews forgot only a few months later. That's why in the book of Deuteronomy, they are reminded constantly, remember, remember, do not forget. Deuteronomy 6 verse 9, teach these to your sons and to your sons' sons, lest you forget what your eyes have seen. Moses has to tell them, even though they saw every morning, they walk outside and they don't have to go to the shop, they don't have to buy, they don't have to plow, they don't have to harvest. The food is waiting for them on the ground every day outside. And Moses says, you're going to forget this. What grace has God given you that you have forgotten? What spiritual life and power has God done in, in your life or in that which you've seen or that which you've heard about, but you forget it so quickly. Now, there is a practical and rational reason not to fear. Elisha did not tell the man at first. He just said, stop it. The young man comes in and says, oh, oh, there's a problem. Elisha's answer, stop it. Master yourself. Let your faith in God conquer your fear. But there is more than that. Now, sometimes God only tells us, trust me, and he does not show you the invisible things. But here, God actually gives a reason not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why in verse 16? What's the reason? Someone tell me in verse 16. Yeah, the army that's attacking us is actually very small. Would you be afraid if 50 men wanted to attack you, but 50,000 men stood around them to protect you? There's no logical reason to fear. But our hearts are so sinful that they don't pay attention to good logic. Right here, he tells him in verse 16, the, the army with us is bigger than the army with them. Now to the young man, he thought the evidence was clear. 
When the young man saw the soldiers, he thought, oh, there's too many of them. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, do not answer a matter before you hear it. If you do, it is foolishness and it's shameful. What he means by that is, don't talk until you have all the facts. This young man allowed himself to be pulled into fear before he had all the facts. But many of us would say, if I were that young man, I would have been afraid, right? And you would have been wrong to be afraid. Because the young man did not have all the facts. He jumped to conclusions. And when he should have trusted in God, he was afraid. And aren't we like this? Don't we speak too quickly? Don't we rush to worry when there's actually not a good reason for it? And if we took time to reflect, wouldn't we see oh, I guess there's a better solution to my problem than fear. Many times with hasty conclusions about the reality, we let ourselves be led into worry and into fear. Now, it's very important that we would get into the mind of this young man so that we can understand what he's feeling. Because this man was sure that he had all of the appropriate information. He was confident, I've got what I need. I've got my eyes, my ears. I used my eyes to look at the men. I used my ears to hear the rumble. Our eyes and our ears are generally dependable, but not finally dependable. Our minds are generally dependable, but not finally dependable. We cannot ultimately trust what we see or hear. Thomas thought, if I could just see it, then I would believe. Maybe, but maybe not. Many people overlook good evidence that they can see. And many people... Believe things that they can't see. Our minds, our eyes, our ears are helpful. But they are not foolproof. They are not the final authority. I have a book in my shelf. Written by a professor in America at a Christian college. Who urges us to trust our eyes and our ears more than the Bible. He's a famous professor at a Christian university who's written many books. In fact, he was so famous, a Catholic university took him away from a Christian university. And that man wrote a book that was recommended. It's a bad book. Because in that book... He urges you, trust your eyes and your ears even more so than the Bible. He should have learned from this young man. He should have gone to Elisha to learn a lesson. But we are all like this young man. 
Because what was his problem in verse 17? You just told me. He's blind. And in many ways, we are all blind. And we could say blindness is a metaphor for our whole Christian life. Blindness is the picture. God wants us to conquer and to slowly begin to see what he sees. And piece at a time, color at a time, shade by shade, he's opening the eyes of his people as they read the Bible and study. Because deep down in our hearts, we all love the world and the things in the world. And that love confuses our eyes. It makes things that are very small appear to be very big. It makes you look at a cell phone and think it's more important than it is. Or a double cab bucky. Or a house with a swimming pool. It causes you to put a price tag on those things even greater than you would put on your religion. Or evangelism or heaven or hell. Let me ask you, is there anything we can do to train our eyes? Is there anything we can do to fix our eyes? If we've got this problem and I want to get over it, what can I do? That's a good question. Let me give you some answers. Four answers for what you can do to train your eyes. Number one, pray for new eyes. Ephesians 1, 16-19 encourages us. To pray for new spiritual eyes. Ephesians 1, 16 through 19. Pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. That's the first thing. Ask God to give you new eyes. The second thing. Meditate on truth so that your mind will be renewed. Don't do that please. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there is any praise, think on these things. Matthew 6 verses 22 to 23. Number 3, the third point that we can do for our eyes is recognize the danger of distraction. Matthew 6, 22-23 are two verses that very few people understand. If the light of the body is single, the whole eye will be full of light, Jesus said. The whole body will be full of light. He's using a picture of a window. If your eye, if, if, the, if the window into your soul is clean and open, Your whole soul will be full of light. But if the window into your soul is dark, your whole heart will be dark. And he uses the picture of the eye as if it were a window. Because the eye commonly, more so than the ear or or touch, the eye takes in so many details about the world around us. And it puts into our heart a kind of light. And if your eye is dark, that is, if you have an eye that is blinded to see the goodness of God and only sees foolishness, backwardness, your sin, worry, causes for fear, 
If that's all you can see, then your whole soul will be consumed by those things. Matthew 6, 22 and 23. So Jesus warns us about the danger of distraction. And he urges us to have a single focus. What can we do to train our eyes? Number four. Repent of willful and ignorant blindness. Repent of willful and ignorant blindness. Job 34, 32. You know that verse. That which I do not see, teach me. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. We should pray that God would forgive us for the sins that we are doing and for the sins we don't even know that we are doing. These are the directions to open our eyes so that we'll see what we should see. This young man is a picture of us all taking the world into account without God. If you take the world into account without the Bible, you will sound like this young man. Fear will dominate you. God will be a sideline. You will run around saying, what can we do? Now, we have started this story and we're, we're about to reach the climax. And the reason this story grips our hearts is because we can all relate to this young man. We all would have done or been tempted to do what this young man did. We want to please our master. We get up. We're doing our duty. We're good people. We do our job. We get up early. We get the water. We get things ready. But God often says to us, simply trust me. He wants us to trust his word. He wants us to lay up treasures in heaven. He wants us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. But this story does not stop there. It does not stop with assertions from God that we must trust. It goes further and gives a kind of spiritual sight that if we would have it, would cure us and help us in our battle against so many sins. Why should we trust God in the most difficult times? Because of what Elisha saw. There is an army out there of greater number than your enemies. The enemies may be 500, maybe, maybe they're 5,000. But the mountains are actually filled with what? In verse 17. What are the mountains filled with? Horses and chariots of fire. And if there's horses and chariots, there have to be people to drive those chariots and to ride on those horses. And who would ride on a fiery horse? Who would drive a fiery chariot? But a man described in Daniel 10, his face was like lightning. 
These are angels, angelic horses and angelic chariots. They have horses for great speed. They can trample on their enemies. They have chariots to bring ammunition and extra supplies. They're organized very well. They are an army from another world. Even if they did not fight, just the sight of them to their enemies would so overpower mortal men that they would run in terror. Why is it so hard for us to see these things? Why, do we, why are we ignorant of these things? Why do we worry when this is reality? Let me give you three reasons. We do not see the horses and chariots of fire because of the wealth of the modern world. The wealth of the modern world can be a great blessing, but it can be a great danger. It's like giving your 18-year-old a car. It might be a blessing. He can shop for you. He can help. He can drive places. He can go to work. Or he can wreck it. Or he can go with bad friends. You might go to a funeral because you give your 18-year-old a car. Or you might train him to be a man and start a business and be mature. The wealth of the modern world is a great blessing when it is put under the feet of Christ. The wealth of the modern world can help us rejoice in the good gifts of God. Like the book of Ecclesiastes says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life here on earth. And rejoice in your house. And rejoice in your food. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 tells us to rejoice and enjoy the good gifts that God has given. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 God wants us to take the wealth of this world and use it all as a ladder to climb back up and get to Jesus and to adore Jesus. And if we don't use it that way, we are idolaters. We are prostituting God's good gifts. The wealth of the modern world is too great for most of the world. Years ago, I read Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I'm pretty sure it's in that book. I gave away my copy now, so I couldn't check to see. I'm pretty sure it's in that book. Where Randy Alcorn tells about speaking with a Romanian pastor. Romania is a country in Eastern Europe. It was conquered by Russia and forced into communism. And then all the pastors were tortured cruelly if they held to the truth. After communism fell, capitalism began to grow Romania. And there was a level of wealth and prosperity. And a Romanian pastor asked, was speaking with Randy Alcorn. And Alcorn said to him, how is the state of the church now? And here's what the pastor said. Listen to these words. The pastor said, I found that 95% of the pastors 
who are faced with the temptation of torture pass the test. That is, they take the torture and they don't give up Christianity. But I've found that 95% of the pastors who are faced with the temptation of money fail the test. And they begin to love money and cars and houses and comfort more than God. The first reason that we don't see horses and chariots of fire is because we are so easily distracted. Like a three-year-old boy on his birthday. His dad comes and says, what I've done for you, young man, I've given you this, this investment of 20 million rand. Here's the paper to prove it's in your name so that when you're 20 years old, 21 years old, you can take out this money and it's all yours. Young man, your life is set. And the three-year-old doesn't care at all for the paper. Instead, there's a five rand ball that was purchased at the crazy store. And the three-year-old loves the ball And cares nothing for the paper that just made his life full of luxury. That's exactly what we're like. We have around us the most amazing riches and we look at something from the crazy store. The second reason it is hard to see the horses and chariots of fire is because of the carnality of many ministries. Many pastors are carnal. Carnal means fleshly. Many ministries and many pastors feed the flesh. Their churches are built not first of all to the honor and glory of God. When the architect designed the building, they did not say What in this building will most glorify God? I once heard a sermon entitled, Architecture to the Glory of God. In fact, we studied that exact topic in 1 Kings chapter 5 to 9. Many ministries build buildings without thinking what will honor God, and they only think what will a 25-year-old young man like. Because the surveys show if you get 25-year-old young men, you also get 23-year-old young women. And if you get a lot of young men and young women, you get other groups too. And the music that is chosen, I was told years ago by a tsonga man when he asked how big my church was. And I told him, he said, oh, let me help you. All you need to do is get very large speakers and play the drums and your church will be full. That was what he told me, probably 2006, 2007. But many pastors follow that advice. They're not fasting and praying for the Holy Spirit. They're not devoting themselves to the Bible. They're saying, what does the fleshly man want? What does the natural man want? Does he want money? We'll give it. Does he want entertainment? We'll give it. Does he want fame and glamour? 
Reason number three, it's hard to see horses and chariots of fire. Because Satan is actively working to intoxicate the mind of believers and to steal the word of God. Matthew 13 verse 19 says, The seed is the word, but it's stolen by the birds of the air. And the birds of the air are a picture of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who would believe the truth so that they cannot understand. The king of Syria brought his own horses and chariots. But Jehovah's horses and chariots are superior in three ways. First of all, they are fiery. Secondly, they are invisible. Thirdly, they are far more. There's a greater number. Syria thinks they have the upper hand. But they really don't have the fire power. Syria thinks they have the upper hand. But all of their troops are visible. God's troops are invisible. Syria thinks they have the upper hand. But for every one Syrian there's ten angels. Notice that the Bible says God's angels are flames of fire. In Hebrews 1 verse 7. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, the seraphim that were flying with six wings, those seraphs are described as burning ones or fiery serpents. That's what the Hebrew word seraph means. In most modern translations, they translate it seraph. Seraph is simply a Hebrew word. It means fiery one. Or burning serpent. These are the angels of God. What would you think if you came outside and you saw there's 400 men here coming to attack me. But there's 100,000 fiery dragons from God here to protect me. God has filled heaven with the greatest glories. If you read Revelation, you see there are beasts with the face of a lion, the face of a calf, face of a flying eagle. And in Revelation, they can talk. These beasts can speak to one another. In Isaiah 6, the flying serpents can speak to one another. These are amazing creatures. And they are here right now. At God's service to serve his people. Notice that they are invisible. That simply means they are not a part merely of this earth the way we are. Rather, they relate to our world differently. These invisible serpents relate to our world. These invisible fiery angels relate to our world In complete submission to God. They are glorious spirits. They adore God perfectly and obey Him instantly. The world's religions are controlled by spirits as well. But they are dark, dirty, sinful, foolish, small, petty, wicked, and cruel. 
The world's religions do not like God's angels. They're terrified of God's angels and of God's son. They don't want the one who created them and the one who sustains them. The fact that these angels are invisible reminds us again that they can be easily forgotten by men because we have such short memories. Notice that these angels are very numerous. In Revelation 5.11, the Bible says there were myriad and myriad of angels or thousands upon thousands. Some commentators believe that that means an infinite number, an uncountable number. These angels form an army that is larger than the army of the Syrians. There's so many of them that they can fill the mountains in verse 17. How many would it take for you to walk out on N1 and look up at the Supensberg Mountains and say, the mountains are filled with angels? Not a hundred. Not even a thousand. The mountains are too big. The mountains around Dothan could have held 50, 100, 200,000 angels. And I'll remind you that one angel... In 2 Kings chapter 18, one angel killed 185,000 men in one night. How many men do you think 100,000 angels could kill? They are far more numerous than the demons. In Revelation 12 verse 4, it implies that there are two angels for every demon. So many Angels have been created that God compares them to stars in Job 38 verse 7. I've often wondered, are there as many angels as there are stars? Scientists have recently discovered the most recent number of stars is 10 to the 24th power. That's the number 10 with 24 zeros after it. That's how many stars there are. Could there be that many angels? How many of them were sent down that day to watch Elisha? And all of these are God's servants obeying him instantly and constantly doing whatever he says at his moment. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. They protect his people. Matthew 18, verse 10. Men in the Bible are usually terrified when they see angels. And this is why scripture often, uh, or this is why God often hides them in scripture. Because if we were to see what angels looked like, we would be terrified. Like, like this young man was. When John saw Jesus Christ, he fell on his face. In the book of Revelation chapter 1. But if you go right on to Revelation 19. Again. When John sees an angel. He falls down at his feet. Angels were so glorious. In the eyes of John the apostle. Who had already seen Jesus Christ. In the flesh. And glorified. Angels were so glorious. That John fell down at the angel's feet. They're terrifying. They're glorious. How would you have felt if you were this young man having seen those angels? What would have been in your mind and in your heart? 
I know what would have been there. You would have immediately been more terrified of your allies than of your enemies. You would have been more frightened. God sent these to help me. Those terrify me. Why do you think so little of God's ministering angels when they are portrayed in scripture as being all around us? African traditional religion teaches the mind and indoctrinates the mind to think that there are demons all around us at all times and all places. But Christianity would teach us there are godly spirits around us at all times and all places. Does it make logical sense to worry when God has his armies of his invincible angels When we have a father who sends out and dispatches his troops at a moment's notice, instantaneously. Though our world is tying us down, the message of this passage is to open your eyes, to break the chains, to to see the reality of spiritual glorious things that are all around us. That's what God would have us to see. So this servant is afraid and he sees the soldiers and then he sees the angels. What else is there to the story? Is that the end? It's not because there's one more very important part. In fact, it's the most important. The angels were sent. They have a sender. The angels were commanded. The angels were created. They were arranged. They were organized. Their troops were put into place by some mind greater than them and higher than them. Where did they come from? Who organized them? That's what we need to see. Just like the book of Esther... God is not mentioned in this story, but God controls this story. Elisha is the man of God. Elisha prays three times to God. Look at verse 17. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray you. Verse 18, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. Verse 20, it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes. Three times in this passage, Elisha prays. And when he prays, Elisha is filled with confidence that God will answer him immediately. He's a man of prayer and he's full of faith. Elisha performs miracles in this chapter by God's power. And then it is the Lord who opens the eyes of the young man in verse 17. And then there's one more way we see God. The Spirit of God preserved this story so that we could read it today. But the most remarkable feature in this story is this. Look at verse 18. And when they came to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray you, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Who smote the Syrians with blindness? The flaming angels didn't 
do anything. They were spectators. They could have won by themselves. They could have conquered the enemy by themselves. Hey, Nicomela Matisso. They could have won the war by themselves. They could have conquered all by themselves. But God did it. He called down his mighty angels just to watch as he wins the victory by himself. There are angels all around us, and if you could see them, perhaps your faith would be strengthened. But whatever they are doing is really, it's just a tip of what God himself does for his people. Some women, when they get to be 40, 50, 60, they think a lot about angels, and my angels are watching, my angels are this. Their mind should be, what does God do for me? I've gone into some Tani's homes and seen figurines of angels all around. As if those angels are reminding me of protection. But usually the angels are made like some cute little six-year-old girl. Not fiery spirits who terrify grown men. God does all the work here. Their Lord and Master called the angels together just to watch as he won the victory. And that's the whole point of the passage. Our problem is we only see this world. So we prize it, we comfort it, we long for safety, we want this world. We want our children to grow up happily. And those things are okay in their place. But it is spiritual realities that ought to dominate our minds and our hearts. I am very concerned that this passage is neglected and the truths in this passage are neglected by most who call themselves Christians. Because most who call themselves Christians are far more concerned about, spiritual, about physical health than spiritual health. They will talk for an hour about how they were sick and they will talk for two minutes about what they learned in the Bible. They will spend this much money on health and medicine and doctors and not even a tenth of it on missions. We will spend so much time on paint and decorations and cleaning our home and how much do we spend on speaking to our children about the gospel? Spiritual things are invisible to us. And that's exactly the way Satan wants it. Don't look. Don't notice them. You ask, then why doesn't God open all of our eyes to see the flaming chariots and flaming angels who are here? Because it glorifies him most when you believe his word. Even an honest man who can show evidence would rather you trust him because he's an honest man. How much more the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He wants you to trust him. I wonder what would happen if we were dominated 
If our minds were controlled, if our eyes always saw heaven and hell, angels and demons, life and death, if God were before our minds, if the cross of Christ was constantly in front of our eyes, we went to game, but we could not see what they were selling. We saw it, but just as a shadow. We made our purchases, but it was as a second thought. Our primary object was Christ was God, was heaven. That's the message of this chapter. That's why this chapter is really foundational to the whole Christian religion. Because Christians are ones who see what is invisible. Who invest in another unseen world. That's what it means to be a Christian. I want to close with this application. What are we doing so that we will see and value spiritual things? And what are we doing that distracts us intentionally or unintentionally from spiritual things? On Friday, I was with the young men in Valdesia, and I asked them, have you ever known real love for Christ, and has your heart ever been flushed with pleasure of love for Jesus? And each of them said, "Uh, maybe a little, but not very much. So I asked them, when did you feel the most love for Jesus And one by one they said, but I'll tell you what Langu said first. He said, every Sunday when I start getting ready for church, I start to get this feeling of love for Christ. And when I'm at church, I feel very happy in God. And when I come home, I have these things that I know I'm going to be a a better Christian. But then he said, By Monday and Tuesday, the feeling is gone, and I find that I I don't think about it very much until the next Sunday. Isn't that your story? What is it that distracts us so much? We need to guard ourselves from the distractions that are invented all around us. And this is the great danger of entertainment. Entertainment is not leisure. It does not build us up. It does not open our eyes. It does not help us see flaming angels. In fact, it doesn't want flaming angels. Like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, when Gollum is told about the elephant, the oliphant, Gollum says, I don't want them to be. I've never seen them and I don't want to see them. Entertainment makes you say the same thing as Gollum. I don't want to see flaming angels and I don't even want them to be. Some relaxation is godly. Leisure should be and could be godly. Entertainment 
is spiritually dangerous. It will take your mind away from these angels and from their master and their Lord. It is already difficult enough to see them when our eyes have not been opened. Then how much more will you see them when your eyes are attracted by every flickering light all around you? I just read this morning from John Owen who said, Those who want to see the glory of Christ must guard themselves from having a mind which jumps from subject to subject. And then he said, those people whose minds are always centered on very small things and selfish things will never see the glory of Christ. It sounds like John Owen had seen people using Facebook. If we want to see these glories, we are going to have to have an undistracted mind and heart. May God give that to us today. Let's close our eyes.